Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Well, hey, Freedom Church, it is good to be back together for part two of this Bible series, exploring this amazing ancient book together. Do you ever ask the question, where are you from? Who are you and what is your purpose here? I often get that with my name. People say, what's your name? I say, Simeon Dendy. That's my full name. People have said, where's that from? And I remember one occasion I said, well, it's, it's biblical. It's a biblical name. And they said, I've never heard of that country. Where is that? And I had to explain that that meant the Bible. Origins are important. Who you are, where you are from, it makes us who we are. The Bible starts with the book of Genesis, which means the beginning or beginnings. It tells us how we came to be, who we are, where we are from. Knowing our beginning helps us understand our identity today, especially when we find ourselves in such a season of uncertainty. We're going to be using not just the Bible, but also a book written by Andrew Ollerton called The The Bible, a story that makes sense of life. And in that book, Andrew says these words. According to Genesis, the universe is not a cold, empty space, an unfortunate accident or a sick joke. If we trace our family history all the way back to its source, we discover things about ourselves and where we've come from that satisfy our human desire for meaning. Understanding our origin creates a greater sense of meaning. Today I'm going to be preaching in partnership with Neil Kirkland, who is a passionate gatherer of knowledge and loves the Word of God. As someone who regularly preaches, I often go to Neil and say, Neil, can you help me? I'm speaking on a particular verse or a topic or a theme, and uh, he will really study hard on my behalf. He's my kind of secret weapon, my behind-the-scenes researcher, if you will. And so I want to hand over to Neil today to help us begin to understand a bit more about our creation and our beauty. Good morning, Freedom Church, for me, from me, and thank you, Sim, for that introduction. As has been mentioned, today we're looking at the first book in the Bible, Genesis or Beginnings, one of the first five books of the Old Testament, which make up what the Jews call the Torah. I chose to talk this week because I love this particular part of the Bible. I'm a scientist by education and fascination, and I'm an engineer by career. I was brought up in a Christian home, but for most of my teenage years, I was a convinced atheist and evolutionist. I saw no need for a creator God to explain the universe, and I did enjoy arguing about it with those who saw it differently. I became a Christian myself when God unexpectedly stepped into my life at age 20. It was literally in my last week at university. I was invited to a church meeting, and during this, I became aware of God's reality and his presence in such a profound and convincing way that it changed the course of my life. It was an experience that defied all my scientific logic, but I've never really doubted it from that day to this. Given my background, one of the first things I set about was trying to re reconcile my newfound faith with my scientific and previous understanding on things. And not surprisingly, that took me to the book of Genesis. There are two books in the Bible that seem to generate more controversy and disagreements than any others. Genesis, the one about the beginning of things, and Revelation, at the end of the Bible, 
uh, the one about the end of things. The controversy around Genesis really starts with its opening statement. Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God simply spoke and the universe came into being. Sometimes we see this expressed in the Latin phrase, creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Now this was a very different view point to the other ancient creation myths of the time that the Bible, uh, Genesis was written. It is also very different to the Greek worldview that influenced Western thinking and particularly scientific ideas. This was a view that essentially understood the universe had existed for all eternity, uh, unchanging. It wasn't until the 1900s, after the work of Einstein and others, that the Big Bang theory of the universe became popular. It would seem that even the scientists were starting to agree with the biblical view that the universe had a beginning and would probably have an end. Of course, what they did not agree with is that God was responsible for the beginning. The secular and atheistic worldview of today teaches instead that the heavens and the earth created themselves out of nothing. That all this amazing complexity and beauty around us is merely the result of random processes driven by the laws of maths and physics. Now, years on from my conversion, I am still fascinated with the truth about our origins. I've certainly not found all the answers, but I have discovered some very significant things. Firstly, I have found that you can be both a scientist and a Christian. The two do not need to be in conflict. And in fact, many great scientists throughout history have also been believers. Sir Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, James Clark Maxwell, Lord Kelvin and George Lemaitre. These all believed in a God who created a universe that obeyed certain laws. Their delight was in discovering what those laws were and how they worked. C.S. Lewis, one of our greatest Christian thinkers and the author of the Narnia stories, said this, men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected in law in nature because they believed in a law giver. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he, and it's talking about Christ there, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God did not just create the universe, wind it up and then just leave it to its own devices. Even the laws that govern it and hold it together today are maintained by his power. Secondly, I found that genuine Bible-believing Christians can and do have quite differing views on the early chapters of Genesis. This does not mean they need to fall out about it. It certainly should not impact how we present the truths of the gospel to the world. And in fact, if you pushed us, you might even find that Sim and I have some different viewpoints on certain aspects of Genesis. Thirdly, I have found that many of the things we have been told about the origins of the universe and life on Earth, those are often presented as scientific facts at school, via the media, and in almost every TV, science and nature program you ever watch, uh, are, are not actually facts, but theories. They are theories that may well have merit, and they have good, may well have good supporting evidence, but nevertheless, they can never actually be proven true. The science of origins is more of a forensic science than an experimental or observational one. We try and deduce what happened in the past by looking at what we can observe and measure in the present. But the best we can ever come up with is, however, is an explanation of the way it might have happened. You just cannot devise any scientific experiment to generate stars and planets out of nothing or complex life out of lifeless chemicals. It is likewise impossible to observe the original processes in action without a time machine. 
You seldom hear about the significant issues with some of these scientific theories of origins, problems that are not necessarily being resolved over time, and in some cases, they're actually getting worse. Just here are a few. Why, for instance, are the laws of the universe so fine-tuned for life? If you change the tiniest aspect of many of the laws of nature, and the scientists agree with this, life, even the universe itself, just would not work. How can complex life ever have arisen by chance from lifeless chemicals? The probabilities are so vanishingly tiny that even the suggested 14 billion year age of the universe gives nothing like enough time for it to happen by chance. One that interests me in particular is cosmology. It's an area when the holes in the theories are currently getting bigger. The discrepancies between the ideas on how the universe works and the scientists' own observations of stars and galaxies are now so large that they have resorted to making stuff up in an attempt to force fit the two back together. Dark matter and dark energy you may have heard about have been invented for this purpose, but there is no experimental evidence that they actually exist. Despite this, they are treated as real by most scientists almost as a matter of faith. Without them, they accept that they would have to throw many of their cosmology theories in the bin and start again. We must, of course, recognise that Genesis is not a scientific textbook, but I'm sure you know the biggest discussion about it is not really scientific, but on whether it accurately records history. We do not have time to go into detail on the timescales of creation, whether the cosmos and life on Earth were created in six days or over billions of years. You could discuss it in your connect groups, but please do not get hung up on it. It is certainly an area of disagreement among Christians. There are many ways of understanding the days of creation, as literal 24-hour periods, as ages in history, as days of creative activity, followed by big gaps, or possibly as days over which God revealed his creation to Moses as the author of Genesis. Regardless of their thoughts on how long it took, the majority of Christians are in full agreement with Genesis 1 verse 1, that whatever the processes and the timescales, God was the one who made it happen. We must also recognise that the Bible itself is not a textbook. It is a story with a message. It is far more concerned with the why and the purpose of things than it is with the how. A current scientific Christian thinker you may have heard of is John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Oxford University, a speaker and author of several books on the matters of science and religion, and he particularly likes the debates with outspoken atheists like Richard Dawkins. He tells the story of Aunt Matilda baking a cake, perhaps for someone's birthday. The physics, physicists and the mathematicians can explain about the atoms and the forces it's made of. The chemists Chemists can explain the molecular makeup of the ingredients and how they bind to each other. The biologists and nutritionists can explain what will happen when you eat it. But only Aunt Matilda, and perhaps those who know her well, can tell you why she baked it. I would also point out that not in a billion, billion years did Aunt Matilda's cake ever bake itself. Yet people today believe that something far more complex did indeed make itself. Dr. Andrew Ollerton, who Sim mentioned and wrote the book of this course, said this, order, shape, symmetry and colour don't just happen. If you see a manicured garden, there's probably a gardener. If you enjoy a delicious meal, there would be a talented chef working behind the scenes, not a random explosion in the kitchen. Science can only go so far in explaining the universe. It can never explain the purpose of it all. As Christians, we must also not use our understanding of science to try and make judgments about the spiritual matters and truths of scripture. Christianity is a miraculous faith, and we believe in a miracle working God. 
If you doubt the miraculous, you doubt God himself. Why do people seem so desperate to believe and prove that the universe and life did not need a creator? I think because they know that if they acknowledged a creator God, they would have to start considering some of the other things that he might expect of them. Paul actually speaks about this in Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And the book of Psalms speaks into this too. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. That's in Psalm 19. This leads onto another aspect of creation that science cannot really explain. That is its amazing beauty. And in particular, why should it appear to our human senses to be so spectacular and stunning? We're now going to watch a video of someone who discovered God for themselves through the beauty of his creation. From a young age, I just loved spending time in nature and being in the outdoors. My parents, they also loved it, and they used to take me to Snowdonia and the Lake District. I remember, maybe I was about six, looking up from the car window and seeing the ridges of Blencathra up high above me, so sort of narrow and sculpted, and they were inviting me up there. I could feel my heart beating, and I just knew I needed to get outside and get into, get into the mountains. I grew up in Shropshire, and that meant there was no shortage of hills and valleys, countryside to explore. And when I'd be out there, I'd often think, there must be something behind this beauty. There must be some sort of creator. And even more than that, it dawned on me that there must be something that makes my heart resonate and feel like this. As a teenager, I had no idea about faith or Christianity. To me, that was just outdated thinking. And yet, every time I was out in nature, I felt strangely compelled to believe, to consider that maybe there was actually a God, and even to pray to him sometimes. So I decided it would be a good idea to go to university, study geography and biology. And it was there that I met Christians who were really open and bold about their faith, and they seemed intelligent enough. And that got me thinking, well, maybe I should be a bit more open-minded about things. So my love of the outdoors just continued to grow, and I would be off hiking and running. And I remember one evening in Shropshire just lying on top of a hill, calling out to God, look, if you're there, would you make yourself known to me? So I started going along to church with some of my friends from university, and I realized I didn't have all the answers. Maybe I needed to humble myself before this God who I was starting to recognize was the creator of everything. And then one day at church, I felt compelled to kneel down before God. I was overcome with emotion. There were tears rolling down my cheeks. And the name of Jesus that once had meant nothing to me suddenly realized it was a name of power and beauty, the same power and beauty that had spoken to me since I was a child. And from that moment, it's been amazing to be in a daily relationship with the same God, the one not only created the whole universe, but he also created me. And what a joy. Although this is my story, I don't know anybody who doesn't marvel at a sunset or feel humbled by the power of the ocean. 
And that makes me think God is communicating with everyone, calling them graciously to himself if they would listen. Thank you, Neil, for setting us up so well on our understanding of creation and beauty. We're now going to focus for a short while on our human identity and our purpose. If beauty and order points us towards God, which is what Steve was saying in that short video, he wanted to discover more of God by asking that really dangerous question. God, if you are really there, will you reveal yourself to me? And he had that experience. So what about human identity and purpose? How does it fit into the Genesis story? In Genesis 1.27, we read these words. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Christian faith is saying that there is a God-like image in who we are, that we bear a likeness to God. A, we are a divine icon, if you will. Whether you believe in God or not, you are a person of dignity, made in the image of God himself. That's amazing. C.S. Lewis, who was mentioned earlier, says these words, a great quote I came across this week. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. The idea that all of us carry something of God himself in the very person of who we are. If that is true, then the essential bit that makes you, you, has a spiritual source, a God foundation, if you will. Your value as a person is not imagined or invented, it is real. It is God-given. According to the Bible, what it means to be human is that you are created by God. Not by chance or by survival of the fittest. Your source is love. A human life is undeniably precious. In Psalm 139, the words say here, For you are created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This idea that God is forming you, right in the darkness of the womb, you are being created and made, and God knows all about it. Human lives are glorious, created beings, indistinguishable from slime and matter. We were formed and lovingly made, as we just heard from that psalm. And then in Ecclesiastes 3, these words, God has made everything beautiful for its time. God has also placed in our minds a sense of eternity. We look back on the past and ponder over the future. Yet we cannot understand the doings of God. God is beyond our understanding. If you sense a longing that there must be more to life than this, the mundane consuming of things, the existing on a perpetual treadmill, look around you. See the human beings that are precious to you. It reveals something of the heart of God, the creator. It's love. 
Just this last week, uh, my daughter Flo had her 16th birthday. And I remember the moment that she was born, the moment I held her in my arms when she was so much smaller. And I've had the privilege of all four of my children having that moment of birth and sitting there and this love that you have for another human being, that it takes over and you think, wow, this thing that I'm holding my hands is so precious, so beautiful, it is loved. What a moment. And that is the way that God looks at you. He sees you as that newborn child and he just wants to pour out his love on you. Our capacity for love, for beauty, for meaning, relationship, everything that gives our life purpose, the framework of the Bible makes sense of that in a way that a godless view of the world doesn't. If we are here by accident, akin to all other types of matter, why do we marvel at sunsets? Why do we get inspired by beautiful art? Why do we spend hours listening to created music? If creation was simply an accident of atoms colliding into each other. The Bible begins in Genesis with a good God creating a good world. We have seen that in Genesis chapters one and two, God created everything, including human beings. And after he'd created it, we are told that he looked at what he'd done and he saw it was good. In fact, on the final day, when God had finished creating everything, the Bible says this, then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And the word there means exceedingly good. Adam and Eve had a beautiful garden to live in where their every need was met. They were given dominion over the animals and over all creation. They were naked and unashamed in each other's presence. They were able to commune directly with God. But when we look out at the world today, we do not see this anymore. Something has obviously gone seriously wrong. We can still see the beauty of creation sometimes, as we've talked about, but now more often than not, we also see pain and suffering, the horrors of war, disease and natural disasters, of greed, selfishness and hate. The Bible also tells us why things are like this now and what went wrong. And we find this in Genesis chapter three. In Christian theology, this is known as the fall. God gave complete freedom to Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, except for one thing. In Genesis two, we read this, and the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We might question why God would not want Adam and Eve to understand something about good and evil, but that is not really what the word knowledge here means. It is the same Hebrew verb yada, which means to know, which is used of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter four, verse one, where it says, Adam knew Eve, and referring to their sexual relationship. The knowledge of good and evil that God did not want them to have is not just intellectual or head knowledge. It is some sort of deep and intimate acquaintance with it and experience of its reality. Unfortunately, as well as Adam and Eve, there was someone else in the garden, someone who had no love for God or for his creation. We are told it was a serpent, but it is clear that the person who spoke through this serpent was Satan or the devil himself. From other places in scripture, we understand that Satan was originally a beautiful angel who rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven along with his followers. 
He is the sworn enemy of God and of mankind. His prime purpose is to turn people away from God. In the most cowardly way, Satan approaches Eve, not Adam, perhaps hoping she was an easier target. He persuades her that God was basically a spoil sport and causing her and Adam to miss out on something. He says to Eve, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Sadly, Eve believes the size lies of Satan, and she takes and eats the fruit that they were told not to, and she also gives it to Adam, who eats as well. Don Francisco captures this heart-rending story in a most powerful way in his song, Adam, Where Are You? I'd love to sing it, but I'm just going to read the lyrics of, of the first three verses. Unashamed and naked in a garden that has never seen the rain, rulers of a kingdom full of joy, never marred by any pain. The morning all around them seems to celebrate the life they've just begun. And in the majesty of innocence, the king and queen come walking in the sun. But the master of deception now begins with his dissection of the word. And with all his craft and subtlety, the serpent twists the simple truths they've heard. While hanging in the balance is a world that was placed at their command. And all their unborn children die as both of them bow down to Satan's hand. And just before the evening, in the cool of the day, they hear the voice of God as he is walking. And they can't abide his presence, so they try to hide away. But still they hear the sound as he is calling. Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? It was the lowest point in history when Adam and Eve knowingly sinned against God. And they immediately started to suffer the effects. They realise they are naked and now, in shame, try to cover themselves with leaves. They lose their relationship with God and foolishly attempt to hide from him. When God finds and questions them about what they've done, they both play the blame game, not willing to admit responsibility for their own behaviour. God curses Satan for all his part in this, but Adam and Eve discover that their sin has other serious consequences. No longer will they experience lies of plenty and ease, but rather ones of pain and toil. The very earth and creation itself becomes cursed. The darkness in the world today stems ultimately from this original act of sinful obedience. And all mankind has inherited this tendency to go against God and his will for their lives. In a picture of the animal sacrifices that Jews will later use to atone for their sin, God does clothe Adam and Eve in animal skins but they are cast out of the beautiful garden and an angel set to guard the entrance so that they can never enter it again. All appears lost, but even at this most desperate point in the human story, there is still hope. So we have looked at creation and beauty. We've looked a little bit at our human identity and our purpose and a tiny amount about evil and pain and suffering and sin, how it came into our world, uh, the fall, as uh, uh, Neil called it there, and how things went wrong. But lastly, as we end and bring this together, I want to look at the hope of redemption. If Genesis is right, then we were made for love and beauty and goodness and meaning, something that we all long for. Yet pain, darkness, selfishness have entered our world as an unwanted part of our existence. Genesis gives us an understanding of why things are as they are. 
but it also gives us hope. We are hope-based creatures. We love to lean forward, to anticipate that over the horizon there is a greater thing coming. In Genesis 3, we first hear those words that were said to the woman, your offspring will crush the serpent's head. There will be someone born through a woman who will end evil in the world. That the first messianic promise was made at that moment, three chapters into the Bible, and already Jesus being foretold. That one day through another woman, Mary, there will be a baby born called Jesus. That her seed, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will bring to birth the Messiah, the rescuer, the saviour, the one who will grow up and crush the serpent's head. Genesis is a promise of what is to come in Jesus Christ himself. But it's not just an idea, but a reality, a foretelling of what is to come. God's great plan, wrapped up in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, became a man, overcame death on a cross. Sin was defeated. The serpent's head was crushed. That's the moment of hope that we see even at the beginning of Genesis. And then in John 14, those famous words Jesus speaks to his followers. He says these words, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There are many rooms in my father's house. I would not tell you this if it were not true. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I am going. It's a, a well-known verse that sometimes is used, and I've had the privilege of sitting next to people as they are passing away or going to uh, be with Jesus, as there is that moment of realization that God has prepared a place for each one of us. And with that, those words, it gives us hope. Jesus gives us hope of what is to come. He has overcome evil, taken on himself, paying the price of the mistakes that we have made so that we are pure and clean, knowing that we can stand in front of a holy God who's prepared a place for us, a home for us. There is extraordinary hope in the Christian faith, a relationship with a personal God, not a system or a machine, but a father God who through his son Jesus has made a way for us to be connected to him for eternity. I wonder if you felt his voice speaking to you today. You are precious because your origin is in love. You are precious because you are made in the image of God. The pain you are in, the evil and the suffering of this world is explained in the Bible and can be redeemed because of Jesus. Maybe today you want to open your heart to him. In Revelation 3, it says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. That invitation is there and I want to invite you to do that right now. That God wants to forgive you and pour out his love for you. And I invite you to join me in saying this prayer together. Thank you, God, for the gift 
of creation, that I am made in your image. I know I have made mistakes and ask for your total forgiveness. Thank you for loving me and sending Jesus to take my place. Please come into my life so we can be in a relationship for all eternity. Amen. Amen. If, if you have prayed that prayer today for the first time, or you maybe you're returning back to be in a relationship with Jesus, then I am so pleased for you. You have made a really good decision. We love to help you get started on your adventure with Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.